welcome back to Art Moves, everybody. I am Dr. Regina Newhan, and I'm here with Major Dwight Smith. Hey, Dwight. What's happening? What's happening? Episode 14 in the house. That's exactly right. And we are thrilled today because we have wonderful artist Amir Fala. Welcome, Amir. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're Thank so, you guys. You're so welcome. We're just happy to have you here. Well, first of all, I just have to tell you, Amir, that, you know, your work is absolutely eye-popping. You know, you've got these gorgeous colors with rich symbolic images that oh, spark thanks. emotions and stir wonder. Your art really pulls people in, compelling them to take a closer look and really explore its depth. I would love to know how you got interested in visual art. Um, you know, I have some faint memories of when I was really young, about like six or seven, of drawing mm -hmm. these kind of like triangular abstractions. Oh, interesting. And telling my parents, look, modern art is so easy. Look, I, I could be famous. <laughs> uh, so that's like my first memory uh, of being an artist or, or be, having showing some interest. But then it kind of just disappeared. And really, I didn't get back into it until... I was in junior high and I was very into skateboarding and through skateboarding I got into graffiti and through graffiti I realized you needed some sort of artistic skill so I started taking art classes to get better at graffiti. Oh my gosh. And somewhere along the lines I realized oh actually I really enjoy this and my classroom had this like poster they called it a mural contest but it was really a poster contest and I somehow won it somehow. in eighth grade. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was not very good at art, but I won it anyways. And um, I was like, oh, I'm, a, I'm good at something. something. Because from a very early age, I always had it. I really wanted to be good at something. I always had that drive, like from as early as I can remember. I wanted something to be my thing mm -hmm. that I excelled at. And I quickly realized sports wasn't going to be it. And um, I loved skateboarding, but that wasn't it, you know. Mm -hmm. I could see kind of like where the end of the line with that uh, was going to be. But with art, I was like, oh, I could just keep getting practicing and getting better. So that really was like the beginning of it. Yeah, longevity. From a pretty early age, That's yeah. That's great. Well, then what was your path in, you know, developing an art career? And where do you practice your art now? You know, so... From that point, I, I knew art was my passion. And when I was uh, about like 13 or 14, we had a college recruiter coming to our school. And um, what, what area is usually, this? Here? What area? This is in like the D.C. area. So I grew up in the suburbs of Virginia, right outside of D.C. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so this recruiter from Maryland Institute College of Art school called Micah in Baltimore came and they did this presentation and I was blown away wow. by the school and it just seemed so fun and exciting and I'd never heard of anything like an art school before and I immediately knew that's what I wanted to do as soon as I saw it I was like oh I want to go there but then I remember at the end of it the presenter said something along the lines of you know it's going to cost like twelve thousand dollars a year Ooh. to go here and it was a private art school yeah. so back then she might have well have said $100,000 yeah. a year. And I remember going to my eighth grade teacher and saying, Miss Hammer, there's no way I could ever afford that. There's no way I could go to art school. That's like 
buying a new uh, Honda Accord every year. Yeah, I remember my dad, my dad uh, had bought a car for around that price right around then. And I was just like, school costs as much as a new car every year. Wow. That's impossible. Yeah. Um, so because of that, I just thought it was impossible. But my teacher, you know, to her credit, she she was like, you know what? You, you practice really hard, you get better and better, and you can get a scholarship Ooh, yeah. and go to art school. And so I really took her encouragement to heart. And all I did was like practice art. And, you know, in my spare time, I really worked hard. And literally like four years later, I went, I went to Micah, that school, the same school, <laughs> on, on a scholarship. Success. Uh, so... That was kind of like my first like big moment where I was like, oh, the energy I put in gets a positive result. And from that moment, you know, I was like, OK, this I want to be an artist. I want to I sat my parents down. I said, I'm going to art school. My teacher told me how to do it. I'm going to sell my artwork for money and that's how I'm going to live. And my parents were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, sure kid. But that was it. So <laughs> so from from the age of 14, I, I really I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So then it was like time to just execute. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, you, how would you describe your style of art now? And how did it sort of evolve? What inspires your subject matter? Most of my work in, right now comes, starts from like a very personal place. Mm -hmm. uh, around, the, around towards the end of undergrad, I realized that the thing that I know the best is myself. And I just started mining my own background, my own experiences. And I quickly realized that I was really interested in reality because reality for me is always so much more interesting than fiction. Ah. And also I was like navigating being an immigrant and like what does it mean to be an American? Mm -hmm. and But also what does it mean to be an Iranian American who looks very dark mm -hmm. for even an Iranian. Iranians don't think I'm Iranian and Americans don't think I'm American. Oh, so I'm in this in perpetual limbo. Yeah. And because of that, you know, that's that was always at the forefront of my mind, kind of being in this like cultural limbo my entire life. So a lot of my work comes out of that experience mm -hmm. and it's always revolved around portraiture and uh, the investigation of like, you know, what it means to be me, but also I try to approach it in a way that um, that's universal enough that somebody that's obviously not myself can also interact with it and it can speak about their experiences. So a lot of it deals with portraiture, uh, issues around social issues, some politics mm -hmm. revolving around that. Um, but all of it starts from my own personal experiences. So when I had a kid, um, that really became like a life-changing event in my life in many different ways, obviously, but um, it had a huge impact on my artwork. And so I started making artwork about being a father and what it means to like raise a multicultural kid oh, yeah. in America today. Um, so everything kind of starts from this biographical uh, place, but also investigating just what's happening with myself and trying to speak about larger issues, but with myself at the beginning. Yeah, that's powerful and 
that's where a lot of uh, artists come from is that personal place. So, yeah, definitely. Amir, I have to ask mm -hmm. you a question about, you know, so your mica did. So I, I read mm -hmm. an article, one of the articles you sent me. And um, what was it like making that jump from mica to UCLA? Because you talked about that. And I talk about that oh, a lot yeah. with a lot of art school kids that are about to make that jump to, you know, the super programs. You know, and they get there, they're like, oh my God. What, what is that jump like? You know, to be well, maybe you, you have that prowess at your BFA school, like I'm the man, and then you go to these other spots, right. and it's just kind of mind blowing. Tell us about that. Well, it definitely blew my mind because I was not prepared. So I went to MICA, which is in, in Baltimore, and because of its location, it's an incredible school, but it's not really tapped into the larger art world in any shape or form. And um, when I became a junior and started thinking about what's the next step, I literally just asked my teachers, what do I do if I want to be an artist and I want to sell art? They were like, well, you got to move to a big city, New York or L.A., and, um, and you have to get an MFA. That's going to increase your chances. So I was like, oh, I got to get an MFA? Okay, I'll get an MFA. So literally that's how much thought, you know, to my own stupidity, <laughs> that's how much thought I put into it. I went to my school counselor and I said, what are the top? seven eight art schools in the in the country she gave me a list and i just applied to them mm -hmm. didn't know anything about them at wow. all just wanted to get in. i mean one. i i mean i wasn't I, I was really young you know so i was i was like 21 years old 20 years old so really i should have probably taken a few years off and kind of experienced life a bit but i just um i didn't do that for better or worse and so yeah i just applied to grad schools I applied for a bunch of fellowships and uh, scholarships, and I got this thing that unfortunately no longer exists called the Jacob Javits Fellowship, mm. and it was a full ride to any school that you get accepted to, oh, sweet. Um, plus a stipend yeah. to like live off of because they didn't want you to have a job while you uh, went to school. And fortunately, I got it because there's no way I could have afforded the schools I, I got I got into. And so I got accepted to Columbia, UCLA, Art Center, CalArts, Hunter, and a couple of other schools. I, I did get rejected by Yale, which I'm still pissed off oh. about. But. <laughs> what up, Yale? <laughs> yeah, I'm still very bitter. <laughs> Yale, I didn't even get, get past the first phase. You know, I still have the rejection letter. Oh, um, so yeah, so I got into UCLA and I flew out, since I got into a lot of LA-based schools, I flew out here to visit the schools. And when I visited UCLA and saw the artwork being made, I immediately thought, this work looks like real professional yeah. art. It really, the, all the work looked fully developed. It looked like it could be in any gallery or museum. Wow. And the decision immediately was made for me. I was like, oh, I, well, I want to be a professional artist. This work. The, I saw. I happened to see a thesis show, and her work looked so polished, so mature, so sorted out. There was no questions. What aesthetics aside, it just looked like professional work. And I was like, okay, I'm going. I'm going here. And uh, so that was it. Yeah. And look where it got wow. you. <laughs> it's pretty wonderful. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, you're currently based in L.A., but you do have some ties to Kansas City as well. Could you tell yeah. us about your involvement in the Plug Project or Plug Gallery in Kansas City? Yeah, so 
think I met the guys from Plug uh, just off, my God, was Instagram even around? Probably off Instagram or Facebook. Yeah. And I got invited to do, for my friend Caleb, that was a part of Plug, uh, he invited me to be in a group show. I had one little painting in a group show. And I think I was Facebook friends with Bruce Hartman. Oh, yeah. I, I had never met him, but I knew about the Nerman Museum. I had some friends that were in their collection. Yes. And um, it seemed like a really exciting museum because they were collecting like very young emerging artists. Yeah. And just for the listeners, Bruce Hartman was the former museum director at the Nerman. Yeah. I mean, really, like Bruce is such a visionary because he took so many chances on totally unknown artists, mm -hmm. you know. Like, I almost feel like he doesn't get as much credit as he, like, when I was there, I found out that he gave Basquiat one of his first institutional shows. Uh, like, that blows my mind. I did you know? know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before the Nerman was the Nerman Museum, yeah. when it was just a campus gallery, he gave Basquiat a show, like one of the first nonprofit Basquiat shows. That's some foresight right there. Yeah, or the fact that, you know, he bought Kerry James Marshall super early oh, for yeah. a few thousand dollars or Dana Schutz, you know, like, he could see into the future and he amassed this incredible collection for a community college. I mean, that's, it's really a, unbelievable. And also like how they integrate artwork within the campus, you know, especially a community college campus is to me so incredible that you could go to accounting class and like see a Kehinde Wiley, yeah. you know, or yeah. like accessibility, a, accessibility matters. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, just imagine you're going taking a calculus class and you come across, you know, ancient Native American pottery. Amazing. Just fantastic. Could be life-changing, you know? That kind of access to art is, you know, especially if you don't have a lot of money, if you're going to junior college, I mean, you know, that really speaks to me. But anyway, so I knew, I knew Bruce very casually, and I had let him know that I was coming to town, and he was like, hey, come visit me at the Nerman. Let's have a meeting, and I'll show you the museum. So I went there and just... Uh, Caleb drove me up there and, um, you know, Bruce gave me a, a walkthrough of the shows that were up and we had a very like casual meeting and just right there on the spot, he was like, I want to give you a show, a solo show at the museum. Do you have any ideas? Wow. <laughs> then we got sidetracked and he started telling me about this uh, professor at the school who collected cacti and succulents. And the only reason he brought this up was because he had seen on Facebook photos of my cactus garden. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like I posted some <laughs> photos of my gardening. Yeah. And he started telling me about this eccentric professor who had all these, this incredible collection of plants in Kansas City. And he had some local paper had written about his collection because like in the winter he would bring his plants indoors before the first freeze. Yeah, those were his babies. You guys know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know, cactuses and succulents don't survive in Kansas City. They're not native. And I was so interested in him and I, all the work I made was biographical. And immediately I was like, Bruce, I want to meet this guy. And I think I want to make the show about him. Hmm. So it was totally out of the blue, pure chance. And so we called him up and he was very confused at first. Why some, <laughs> this is a complete stranger. <laughs> a complete wants stranger to wanted to make the show. On me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was very perplexed. But we met and we really got along and literally like eight months later, I had this massive show, my first institutional museum show, and I went all out. I mean, like I made like a 13 foot tall giant sculpture of a terrarium oh, yeah. and 
I did a textile piece and it was like a full on installation. Yeah, I saw some pictures. And, they were incredible. Yeah. And it was a huge boost for me because I had never mm-hmm. had a serious show at a museum. That was your he first one. He really took one. a chance. That's amazing. Yeah, it was my first the museum show. And um, I don't. Even, I think I only had one gallery that represented me at the time in Dubai. Ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So really that show was a springboard for me to like attract galleries, to attract collectors. Yeah, Kansas um, City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bruce bought a painting of mine for the collection. So it had a huge impact, like literally life-changing impact. And, uh, you know, I'm forever grateful to Bruce. Yeah. Re- really, like, to take a chance on, like, a very young artist with really not a huge resume, you know, um, was, was a game changer. I, well, I, I think it, it, it just sings to your practice. I mean, your work is extremely beautiful and ornate in, in, in such a manner that it, 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 you feel the, you got, I can feel from your ornateness in, in how you wrap the figures, you know, you know, collector 101, you know, you always have like an artist that you think you want to do your portrait, right? And it was like, for me, it was like, okay, I want to, I want to be one of those Alex Katz portraits. You know, I, I figure if, I'm, oh, yeah. if I made it to Alex doing my portrait, I have succeeded as a collector, but then that shit, it changed when I got to you. It changed when I saw your work. And, and what really helped me get there was the piece you did of, um, it was Pamela Hornick and Teddy. You did, yeah, you yeah. did that. And I was like, okay, I want, I want a mirror to do me. I, I, that was, it changed the scope of how I wanted to be felt in an image. You know, I, when I saw you did that, I said, okay, I said, you caught Pam and Teddy in that piece. You know, people who don't even know Pam would know that individual if they saw her in Teddy just because of that picture. Yeah. And, I was like, I, and you became oh, my thanks. new portraiture, my guy that I was like, as a collector, I was like, okay, I got to get a mirror to do me. So, you know, from oh, a I'm collector, well, hey, you know, from a collector that, you know, that was my growth. I think as, you know, a lot of collectors, they, they look at what, you know, is popular or what would be considered a certain standard and then, well, hopefully you develop your own. And then when I saw you do that, that's what kind of tied me. Question, what is the weirdest, you know, commission that you've gotten from a collector? So I know I know collectors reach out to you at all levels probably now. What is the, what is the weirdest ask? I want you to do this for me. Honestly, I haven't gotten anything super weird. I actually, you know, funny enough, I actually don't do a lot of commissions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Only because I get very nervous doing them. Like in general, when people commission a piece, mm-hmm. especially when it's a portrait, even if it's my portrait where you don't even see what people look like, you know, it's a really yeah. an alternative portrait. But people bring their a certain image in their mind of what they think it's going to look like. Yeah. And so when they see something that doesn't match whatever image they've painted in their own mind, there can be tension or a shock or a surprise. Yeah. Um, so I actually don't do them that often. The only reason I actually did it with Pamela is because they, they actually own several of my paintings and they know my work very in depth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, they know my work v- very well. And I told them like, you know, I'm just gonna make this thing. It might not look like, you know, I spell it out. Like it might not look like what you think it's going to. And Pamela was like, I don't care. Just paint me and Teddy however you want. 
I don't, I don't want to have any Free say. Ring. Yeah. But I did actually, now that I remember, I did do this one commission early on where the collectors, it, it was a, a family and there was some tension <clears throat> between, I didn't know it at the time when I took the photograph for the painting, but there was some tension between the husband and the wife. And when the, when the wife saw the painting, she got upset because she thought that the tension was somehow visible. It was just a very classical pose. Wow. But yeah. there was like a hand, like the way they were like kind of embracing each other. She, she felt that there was a tension in the image. Mm. And um, that was really interesting to me because I thought, well, I think I did my job because I accurately portrayed <laughs> you. Portrayed you. You painted but what they, was there. They actually, yeah, but they actually wanted to swap it out. Um, oh, wow. So that, that was very early on. So after that, I was like, you know, I got to be very choosy with who um, I do these for. Like, they got to know what they're getting because it's not a vanity project. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that got a little weird because I essentially, you know, I think the couple got over whatever issues they were having. But I accurately captured, even though you couldn't see their faces, even though they were real, yeah. the, just the way they were posed, it, it captured that essence. And, I, and I, for me, I was like, you should actually want this painting more because the painting could be a reminder of this rough patch and how not to repeat those mistakes or that. To me, that's like a really powerful piece mm -hmm. historically because it actually captures that moment in time. So that, that, that one was a little bit tricky to maneuver, you could say. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Hey, I, I do want to ask you about the art scene in a smaller city as compared to L.A., Kansas City and, and maybe of the Midwest at large? Well, you know, I come from like a very small, not a small town, but like a small art scene. So I'm very, um, I'm very comfortable in those environments or I have a lot of experience with it. But, you know, I think although Kansas City doesn't have a ton of commercial galleries, it does have some, but it has some great institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I mean, you guys have three, four really incredible museums and you have nonprofits and and then also you guys have quite a bit of collectors in that area i mean i think a lot of people sometimes glaze over the midwest but i have tons of collectors in the midwest i mean actually in in kansas city i have like five or six different collectors that collect in depth and have collections i would consider like a national reputation high profile collection so i think it's just one of the many parts of the art ecosystem and you need you need those you know i i like i just had a show in minneapolis which again similar to kansas city not a ton of galleries but some galleries and then some great collectors some great institutions and i enjoy showing in those places because uh i don't believe in this like kind of like segregated la or new york only kind of thing yeah. like there's a lot of people in America from all walks of life that enjoy art and are passionate about art. And for me, I want as many people to see my work. So I enjoy showing in places like that. I feel like you just tap into a different culture, a different group of collectors and a different community. Um, and that's, that's what's beautiful about art. Yeah. Do you feel an artist really needs to be on a coast or at least in a bigger city to find a voice and an audience to be heard, so to speak? I don't think you have to be. I know, I mean, I have friends that live in New Mexico in the middle of nowhere 
and <laughs> one of them is going to be in the Whitney Biennial this year. Nice. And when she moved there, she barely had a career, and now she has a, a huge, massive career. Love so that. I think, I think it can happen anywhere. Do I think there's some benefits to living in a, in a larger art city? Of course, you know, in LA. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, next week, there's Freeze Week here. Oh, yeah. And What's up, LA? I'm coming. Yeah, Dwight's yeah. going to be there. <laughs> yeah, Monday to Friday, I have like studio visits from morning till night every single day from museum groups, curators, collectors. Oh, my gosh. I got to squeeze me one in, man. I got to squeeze yeah, me yeah, one yeah. in. Yeah, come by. Yeah, definitely <laughs> let me know. But you know what I mean? Uh, like that's an opportunity that would only exist in a place where there's like a major art fair or right. – a large, you know, a place that people vacation or come to. Like I know no matter what, if you're involved in the art world, at some point in the year, you're coming to LA. Mm, yeah. So let's say if you're a curator in the Midwest somewhere and you're interested in my work, because I'm in LA, my chances of getting a studio visit with you and then coming here to visit some family or friends or vacationing or coming to see a show or a play or something, those chances just increase, right? So it just gives me better access to the world that I want to be in. But that doesn't mean it's impossible to do it elsewhere. So maybe if you live in Kansas City or in other kind of smaller art centers, then, you know, I think how you navigate social media becomes more important. Mm -hmm. How you travel to fairs or, you know, visit bigger art destinations, you know, mm -hmm. um, has to come into your practice. But I think it's true with every industry, right? Like if you're into logging, but you live in like the desert. Well, you're probably going to Portland a couple of times a year. Or something. A couple you know, times you're going a year. to Vermont. You, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah, there's advantages, but there's also disadvantages. It's more expensive here. Yeah. More you competition know, too. I, yeah. There's more competition. If I lived in Kansas city, my studio would be probably 20,000 square feet because yeah. of the cost, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. but in LA it's, you know, it's still a nice size studio, but it's not 20,000. You know, I'd yeah. have a warehouse there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right. So, there's a I'd be hanging out. I'd be hanging out all the time, like Dwight's back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get rid of him. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, for me, it's like I don't know. The art world's such a global community. I mean, I ha I have. Yeah, I like that. Collectors and artist friends, literally all over the world, from tiny towns to big cities. That's so great, and it's becoming more so. You know, Amir, I have to ask you. You know, um, your recent article. You mentioned that curators are awesome. Can, can you discuss the importance of the artist-curator relationship, especially for artists that are, you know, trying to make that jump like you? I, you know, I try to tell them curators are important, but, you know, you, you, you so eloquently described how that individual was able to kind of like translate and then explain your work to you in a way that you hadn't seen. Um, tap into some of that, that, that curator relationship and the importance of, of having a good curator relationship. Yeah, I mean, you know, m like most most curators that work at like museums or art institutions, um, they're really art historians as well. Mm, so yeah, they, they have degrees in art history and they just have a deep understanding of art history, but also they've studied it in a way that even I haven't. So they can make connections across time periods, across regions, across art movements in a way that sometimes an artist or a collector can't. So that really becomes a benefit. Mm -hmm. I think those people are, they're really important and they're just 
one of the many people that that are part of like the broader art world and art environment they're they're definitely necessary and yeah like dwight said i recently had a curator show me something about my own work and my own background that i don't think i would have realized otherwise and it was life-changing yeah really gave you some insight huh yeah so yeah they're professionals and you know they have degrees in curation for a reason you know they're yeah they're masters of what they do and um i don't take them for granted now some people say they're curators and they're not curators you know they're 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 selectors they're pickers Mm -hmm. you know i mean i have curated shows before but i don't call myself a curator yeah that's a good distinction um, there's a there's a level of scholarly research that's involved that I don't do. But do I think like artists or collectors or whoever can curate things? Of course, and they can do it well. Yeah. But like professional curators, that's a that's a different level that I think is like mm-hmm. really necessary and important. That's really interesting. Well, how important do you think gallery representation is to an artist as compared to, you know, attempts at self-representation? Because we we hear about that more and more these days, but I'm just curious your thoughts. For me, galleries have been pivotal. Now, there's good galleries and there are bad galleries, just like there's good music agents and bad music agents or record labels. Sure. But for me, it's been, again, like working with a very good art dealer that's really conscious of your practice Mm -hmm. and your career and how to position you within the broader context of art, it's crucial. They bring a lot to the table. Yeah. I try to work with people that are like that. Now, as I was kind of coming up and working my way up the ranks, you know, beggars can't be choosers. So I've worked with some Mm -hmm. dealers that ended up being, I mean, one of them is literally on the run from the FBI for stealing art from artists. So uh, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, right. (laughs) Art crimes. (laughs) Art crimes. (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, there's a whole gamut of good and bad, right and wrong. Um, but yeah, but my overall, my experience has been really good and galleries just do something that artists can't do for themselves. And like, there's a difference between a collector coming to a gallery and me telling them how great I am and then a, (laughs) and then a dealer telling, you know, it's like, it never sounds good if you're like, Hey, I just changed the game. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it gets real awkward. Just in case you you didn't know. Yeah. So, you know, but then also there's like, for, I mean, they provide so many different, you know, they help with uh, institutional exhibits. They help on so many different levels. So for me, I I think they're definitely a necessary uh, part of the equation. I don't know too many artists who have massive careers without the assistance of galleries maybe when they get to the top they don't need them as much but on the way up i think they're absolutely necessary that's really interesting and that makes a lot of sense well what would you say to artists who may be struggling with their confidence um, or their ability to properly be recognized and appreciated for their work what, what advice would you give them well you know it's being an artist unfortunately is a grind it's it's one of the hardest professions you can you can choose to have nobody needs art artists well they need them but it's not like uh it's not like food and water and shelter right it's uh it's more of a want um it's nice to have but it's not absolutely necessary to survive and because of that 
Uh, it's very tough. It's extremely hard to be an artist and there's really no shortcuts. There's no magic. There's no magic cure to fix it. It's really a marathon and not a sprint. Yeah. And there can be days, weeks, months, years, decades where you're making work and people don't recognize it. They don't celebrate it. They don't accept it. They don't acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And when I meet with students at colleges, I tell them, if you can be happy and do any other career, go do that career. Uh. Because this is not for the faint of heart. And this is something that you have to do. Yeah, It's a need, not a want. And so you have to be in it for the long haul and you have to have, you almost have to be delusional. You know, I went to UCLA for grad school when it was white hot. Everybody was getting snatched up out of the grad program. But that didn't happen for me. I didn't have immediate success. And it was very difficult, um, both financially and just emotionally. Sure. And it took me almost a decade to really, really get to the work to a place that it needed to be, but also to like make the right connections. And it was very tough. And, you know, I just remember so many nights where I was like going to my my now wife back then girlfriend and just telling her like, man, this is just brutal. I'm just I'm treading water. I'm not getting anywhere. No one gives a crap about me. I'm just working in this spare bedroom alone and nobody cares about what I'm doing. That's pretty disheartening. Yeah. Meanwhile, all my friends are getting these massive shows. Yeah. But. Somehow I stuck to it and I just kept chipping away at the work. I kept refining, I kept improving, I kept just chipping away at the problems and slowly but surely things started happening. And it was very, it was like a trickle, you know, it was like a leak in a house. It was first, it was a drop, you know, that every once in a while, then the drop kept getting, you know, like more frequent. And then it was like a constant drip. And then at some point, you know, the, the floodgates kind of opened, but it was yes. every step of the way was super painful and it's still painful. Yeah. It's still hard. It's laborious, isn't it? It's, it's, it's never gotten easier. I know Dwight has a couple questions for you, but I want to just nerd out here a little bit and, and ask you something uh, because you are so skilled at painting and sculpture and you do installations. I'd love it if you could satisfy the curiosity of many listeners like myself who appreciate visual art but are not artists and enlighten us as to the logistics of how you go about making your works, especially when they're so large. You know, do you start with a study for your paintings or a model for your sculpture? How do you translate that to such a large scale and make it so crisp and precise? Or is it more organic and you just let it evolve? I mean, what is the process? How do you do that? So this is this comes with those many years of working, chipping away slowly, and it's a process that I've kind of refined, and it's work in progress. But I started very simply. Mm-hmm. So when I first started, like specifically for like the portraits that I've been doing for, that's pretty much the longest body of work that I've been doing. They started very simply. They started with a simple idea, and over time, that idea matured it got more complex both technically and conceptually and the big turning point for me was i realized that when i have a project or an idea when i think i'm done or i think it's good enough or it's like ah people will like this 
I always push myself to go at least 10% further. And I use that as a rule. Like every time I feel comfortable, I push myself to go a little bit outside of my comfort zone. And that has really helped organically mature to work and evolve it. Yeah. Um, And also I've slowed down taking on new projects. So like, for instance, a few years ago, I started doing these flat sculptures Mm-hmm. But I'd been thinking about those flat sculptures for two years before I actually started making making them. Mm-hmm. They were just like an idea that I'd been doing some sketches and thinking about and kind of refining. So I've actually slowed down my process, and that's given me time to, before I even actually start making it, to refine uh-huh. the idea in my in my mind, mm-hmm. so that when I finally do execute, there's less mess ups or mistakes. I've found that I've eliminated that awkward transition between one body of work to the second body of work. Because sometimes I will sit on an idea for three, four, five years before I actually make it. Ah. And that slowing down has really helped eliminate like making, you know, as many mistakes as I would otherwise. So you've gone over the concept and what you're physically going to do so much in your head that by the time you do it, and with all these years under your belt, you have the skill to do it. By the time you do it, you're able to manifest that idea so much easier than if you just had a spontaneous idea and then boom, okay, let's see if it, it, if it works. Yes. So because for artists, one, one mistake young artists make is it's really, if you're in a creative person, it's really easy to have new creative ideas. Because you're creative. So new ideas come, new ideas are the easy part. Yeah. It's how do you take that idea and really like make it polished and mature and like have it have layers and nuance. So at some point I just felt like I had like art idea ADD and art supply ADD where I was just jumping around every six months. Uh. I'd find this new idea, I'd explore it. And then when I hit a wall where I got past that honeymoon phase, I would throw my hands up in the air and say, well, I got this other idea. Let me explore that. But then six months later, I'd be back at square one. Yeah, I can see the temptation there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like when I got to my early 30s, I said, you know what? When I get to that awkward period where I don't know what to do next, I'm going to keep digging. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep pushing and maybe I have to make some duds. But I'm going to just keep digging past that superficial easy part and see what's underneath that. And when I did that, everything changed. The work got better, it got more mature, it got more in depth. Um, And I find that that's where the meat of the bone is, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, it really, it gets past that superficial, like, oh, that looks cool. If you're a halfway decent artist, you can make stuff look cool, you know? Um, But I'm not making decor, you know? I'm trying to say something, I'm trying to move people, I'm trying to, add to the visual history of humans. So that's a much bigger task and it's much more involved and in depth and, um, and it's like a much more serious pursuit. Good point. Ooh, Amir, I, I, gotta, I gotta hit you up. You know, what you just said was beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm going back, so ride with me. I'm, I'm, I'm back in high school with you, junior high, the zine, beautiful decay. And, then you move into the magazine, you know, at the end of, of your of your of your BFA, you hit the magazine, 
Um, are, do you have a plan for us in the social media realm for maybe a return to those that, that conceptualism and that and that kind of presentation? Um, I mean, because you're like a master practitioner now. You, you've kind of done it all, you know, um, like you said, slowly. You know, I would love to do a publication again. Um, I love printed. I have thousands of art books of other artists, so I love printed material. Hmm. But the publishing industry was really brutal financially. Yeah. It's not an easy social media essentially like killed my magazine because my magazine was essentially a hard copy of social of Instagram. We were finding yeah. new and interesting stuff and giving it its first exposure. So I would love to do something, but literally would have to get some sort of financial backing, you know, whether it's like maybe I do an issue of Beautiful Decay that's a part of a museum exhibition or something like that. And I'm actually in talks with an institution to do something like that. But it's just it's very expensive to create printed matter, you know. Well, um, I mean, you had some very forward thinking stuff in, 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 in those, you know. Pushing the envelope. We definitely did. And it was because my interests were really diverse. I mean, mm -hmm. I've always, and you can kind of see it in my paintings too. So yeah. I was always interested in subculture. I was always mm -hmm. interested in fashion and illustration and design and pop culture. But I also was interested in like contemporary painting. I was also interested in performance art. I was interested in photography. And a magazine really was one of the first magazines to combine all these different high and low aesthetics together mm -hmm. and create bridges between them and create dialogue between them. And yeah, I mean, I would love to do things like that too, but it just has to be, you know, I need a benefactor. I need somebody that can- I, I hear you. Hey, well, you know, I, I asked you that because I would love your take on the graffiti that we've seen just in the last three months across America, you know, that the way, right. you know, it's like this wave where it's like graffiti artists have kind of risen to the call, if, if you will, you know, between Basel and what's happening in LA. And then, you know, just a lot of other places where graffiti has just been white hot. You know, I would love to see you, how you tie this, would tie this into, you know, our society right now. Cause I know your eye would just really blast that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I would love to do that. Um, uh, it, it, would, it would be a lot of fun, and it was such a big part of my life. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on other, you know, when I did the magazine, it really, you know, it was a for-profit business, mm -hmm. and I did make my income from it, but really it was like a non-profit. There was, you know, even at the height of it, when I had like seven employees and, um 50 contributors all over the world and we were internationally distributed wow. i barely made any money off of it yeah um so it really was it probably should have been a non-profit but i was like in my yeah. early 20s you know i was a kid yeah. when i went it was an accident that it got popular it's kind of um, amazing yeah it was kind of just like a weird art school project that kind of turned into a business and then i had to learn business on the fly yeah Gosh. so yeah, it would be fun to do something along those lines again, you know, you know, if you're if, if you're a curator at a museum or, or extremely wealthy collector that that wants to sponsor <laughs> something, you know, give me a call. Curators, rich folks, you, you heard it here. Amir, give them a call. Let's get cracking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just something about 
print mm -hmm. that you can't match in digital. Yeah. It just yeah. the physicality of holding a book, it makes it feel not so ephemeral. And there's just something really beautiful about that. And that's why I collect artist catalogs. Actually, I was just um, looking at a book, uh, a Barry McGee catalog that I got from Deitch Projects in the mid-90s when I first went to New York City. And I still have it. Yeah. You know, I was still a teenager when I got that book. Oh, and amazing. I still have it. I'm like a middle-aged man. And, it, and it's still powerful to have that as this like record of time as a record of that artist or, you know, I got, I went to the first time I went to New York, I also went to Dia when Dia was in New York city and I bought a Chris Ophelia book, a little catalog, um, from the Dia bookstore. And that book changed my life. I literally, Chris Ophelia is my favorite painter and it literally changed my entire art career, my trajectory. And, um, like, and that book is a marker of that moment, yeah. you know? But you're right. When you have a um, something physical in your hand that you are looking at, you know, it's occupying two of your senses at once, and yeah. it really compels your focused attention more so than just, you know, glancing at something digital, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I always try to, if an artist has a book coming out, I always try to buy it and support it because I just think it's important. I think it's like, it's it's kind of like part of the art community's uh, duty to support printed material like that because they are really special and they're labors of love. Nobody gets yeah. makes money on art catalogs or, you know, monographs. Uh, these things are just, you know, they're beautiful. I mean, I have a book coming out with my gallery in Shanghai. We've been working on it for like a year. I mean, and it's, it's a pure late, nobody's going to make a dime on it, but it's going to be a really special, you know, uh, and as you say, a marker a of history. Yeah, yeah, a marker of history. Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I think a lot of people casually see, you know, uh, publications that are put out um, about an artist with their work, and you know, they don't give it a second thought, and they don't really understand the significance of it. And so I think that's really great that you're pointing this out. How meaningful that can be. And um, it's also nice for people who are interested in art and appreciating art who would love to collect art. Maybe they feel they can't afford it, but here is another means that you can pay tribute to an artist and feel like you're, you're a part of it. So I think that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking of that, you know, Amir got, got that drop you just did. With a, what was, who was it with? You know, this year it, was, it was actually, yeah, the, my print. Yeah, it, it was with my gallery in Shanghai. Shanghai. They're called Gallery All. It's a new print based on a painting that I recently showed in Shanghai. The painting's called a, a, a Cosmic Storm. And essentially the imagery is not just about environmental concerns and feeling helpless in this storm of impending doom and disaster about our environment that we read about and feeling helpless, um, but it's also just about the state of the world at large where you just feel like you're in this tornado of bad and despair and anxiety and fear and you have to try to stay positive and navigate it. I mean, I have to do that because I have a kid. I have no choice. I can't cower and hide under a rock. I don't have that option. I have to hold on to um, hope and positivity and push for change. And so that, that's what the, the painting's about. And so anyways, uh, I thought it was like a good moment to release that print and kind of document that this moment in time. I thought it was like a timely 
piece to make an edition of. And, uh, and I only release like maybe one or two editions a, a year at the very most. This is the first print like on paper edition that I've done in four years. And, um, you know, it's at a more accessible price. It's, it's $700, um, which I've seen it. It's beautiful. Yeah, for quite large print. Um, so it's something that's much more accessible. And it's interesting because I don't release a lot of prints. When I do release a print, it's always interesting to see who buys them. And I would say 75% of people who buy my prints are people who work in the art industry that they're either, it, it's two people. It's either my traditional collectors that are just buying it just to support or they're people that work in the art industry but aren't art collectors. So I have a lot of museum yeah. curators, uh, registrars, like people yeah, that I've worked with or know off social media that work in the art industry, but they don't they can't afford a twenty, thirty thousand, forty thousand dollar painting, but they can afford a print. And um, so I love that because it, it allows access to people who are part of our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, to have something that's very limited and like touched by the artist, but is at a more accessible price point. So I like to release something every once in a while because it just taps a different community that want to be part of the dialogue and have something of quality in their home, but usually can't. So that's lovely. Yeah, it's always fun seeing who gets it because I'm I'm always surprised. Like I always wonder like if other artists have that same thing with people who order their mm-hmm. editions because. Um, it's very specific to my work. It's like it's almost always muse- people that work at museums or institutions, which I just find fascinating. Yeah. Well, what's um, coming up for you in the short term? And then what do you see as your goal maybe years from now? Short term, I have a solo booth that I'm doing with uh, my gallery in L.A., um, they actually just changed their name. They used to be called Shulamit Mazarian, but um, now they're called Nazarian Curcio. Yeah. Uh, so they're my LA-based gallery, but we'll be doing a solo booth in Chicago. Nice. Uh, at Expo. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that'll be. I'm gonna have to pull up on you at Expo. Then. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and then I'm doing a couple of group shows um, in LA. Uh, actually, next week I'm doing a group show with Art for Change at Phillips, and um, I'm also doing a group show with The Pit, which is a LA-based gallery. The Pit, started wow. a, Yeah, yeah, it started as a as an artist-run gallery and mm-hmm. now is, you know, has a great program. They just expanded, and I've been friends with Adam and Devin before they even opened the gallery. Oh, fantastic. Um, You're busy, busy. Yeah, and I'm working on a couple of public art projects for the city of San Jose for their for a new train station there in East San Jose. So I'm working on that and a couple of other long-term, like three, four-year projects, public art projects for museums, but I can't uh, announce announce them just yet. So I have some like short-term stuff and then I do quite a bit of public art. So I have some very like long-term projects that I'm also doing. Um, and then, you know, long-term goals, I mean, aspirations, I mean, you know, like, I mean, if it, if I already, fe- yeah. I mean, I already feel like I've won because I get to do what I love as oh, a career. It's it's so, it's so impossible to even get to this point. I feel super privileged and and grateful. But 
uh, I'm a very ambitious per- person. So, Yay. you know, I really just want to be a contributor to the history of art. I mean, really, uh, I think every artist deep down inside, they want to make something to leave behind that means something that's just, even if it's just a drop in the ocean, I love you want to add to that dialogue. And, you know, I, I, I just want to create a record of, you know, what it means to be me and, and also of this moment in time that we're all living through. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Thanks. Well, I think you are definitely doing it, sir. You, you know, again, your work is fantastic, brilliant. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I really do. We've been talking about your wonderful art, and people listening who aren't familiar with you may want to go see some of that art. So could you tell us your website or your Instagram handle? Yeah, um, Instagram is just my full name, Amir H. Fala. Uh, so you got to remember to H or you'll go somewhere else. The, the full handle is A-M-I-R-H-F-A-L-L-A-H. And then my website is the same thing. It's just amirhfala.com. Perfect. So those are, you know, those are good starting points. Excellent. Amir, I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. Making, the, making the run in L.A. for, um, for Freeze and Felix. And, Art fairs. And, and definitely going to swing through the spring break. So we definitely going to try to squeeze you in. And I'll I bring a couple of curators for you to meet as well. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Amir Fala, thank you so much for taking a little time and sharing your thoughts with us. It's been wonderful. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on and, you know, keep up the good work. Have a great one. Take care. Thanks again for listening to Art Moves, the podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe through your favorite podcast platform or the website. You can find links for this and the video show at linktree slash artmoves that's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash a-r-t-m-o-v-e-s and thanks <laughs>